You are blessed to be here. Uh, I've been here for a few hours. We got in late last night and just walking around and seeing the goodness of the um, student body, the beauty of where God has planted you for the next few years. And you should be very uh, grateful that the Lord has opened this new door for each of you and you've responded generously. So we'll keep you here only until about 11 tonight. <laughs> you read Athanasius is on the Incarnation, don't you? Here, it's freshman year? In his unmatchable introduction to that work, C.S. Lewis has a great image that one cannot join intelligently a conversation at 11 p.m. that began at 8 p.m. And that we take the church fathers seriously because they provided us with the foundational elements and building blocks of our Christian story. And so even though you read widely across the um, tradition, you really need to pay attention to the church fathers because they're the ones that gave us the beginnings of how we speak um, about the Christian story. And this is why I wanted to bring us into Augustine tonight. I figure a beginning of a new year, new student body, a new discourse, and Augustine is one of those major players. Five and a half million words he left us, more than any other church father. In this corpus, he treats many of the situations and discussions that we have today in our church. I know you're named after Thomas Aquinas, right? But we Jesuits can't praise Dominicans too much, so we'll back up. <laughs> Unlike Aquinas' world, Aquinas knew the world of Christendom, right? I mean, he was surrounded by basically Christians. Augustine's living in Northern Africa in the ending of the Roman Empire, surrounded by pagans, divisive Christians, the children of Israel, he lived in a much more eclectic situation, much more like our own. And much more like our own, Augustine lived in a world where dogma was not so much appreciated. And so he preached and worked not so much out of doctrinal formula, but out of the heart. And this is one of the great attractions, I think, to Augustine. When asked who makes the best Christian, he says, give me a lover. That person will understand. Give me someone who is thirsty, someone who yearns for wholeness. This person will be able to appreciate who Jesus is. And this is the world you and I live in, I think. We live in a world that is divided, not only between Christian and non-Christian, but even within our own body, right? The right and the left, the conservative, the liberal. Augustine knew this world with the Donatists. Remember the Donatists? Was that junior year? Um, he lived in a world, too, that was divided, a church that was split. And so I think he has something to say for our situation today, for sure. Why deification? As Mr. Shields said, this is the title of our talk tonight, right? Augustine defined heaven as one Christ loving himself. And so the theology of deification for Augustine it really is essential. And the argument I want to make tonight is that it's there present in his works, even though for a long time we've not really appreciated it. Usually when we think of deification, we think of Mormons or the Greek fathers, right? This notion of becoming God. And even though it is present, certainly in the Greek Fathers, it's there in Augustine. Although the term is used only 18 times with the five and a half million words, the reality is there everywhere. And that's the argument I want to lay out through the quotes tonight, okay? So I don't have a prepared talk, but I do have this hand. Does everyone have a handout? All right, Murphy, do your job. All right. I knew Mr. Murphy when he was in St. Louis, so I can pick on him and you can't complain. <laughs> When I was a Jesuit scholastic, I was sent to University of Innsbruck 
for my theology studies. And there was another uh, young Jesuit in our vow class who was at the University of Edinburgh. And I flew up to Scotland to meet him and see Scotland. I'd never been there before. And there was one day in our time together in which he had a lot of meetings. So I said, well, I'm just going to from the university, University of St. Andrews. And so I put on a traditional Jesuit garb. I had khaki shorts and an ACDC shirt on. <laughs> and I was walking across campus. And this woman approached me, and had, having been in the game long enough, I knew exactly what she was going to do. And she came up to me and she said, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And I looked at her and I said, you know I do, but I don't want one. And her mouth dropped. And she said, you don't want one. I said, well, no. If it, it, might, it might have been her accent. Honestly, this was not a preconceived answer. I said, you know, your lats are your sides, right? Lato is the Latin side. I said, a relationship literally means side to side. And I said, I don't want Jesus off to the side. I want something more. I don't want a relationship. I want union. In a good evangelical fashion, she says, let's talk in scripture. And I said, sure it is. Galatians 2, 19 to 20. The first quote I gave you to have my hand out. Right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I said, I don't want Jesus off to the side. I want his words to become my words. I want the way he looks at people to be the way I look at people. I said, with you, my friends, the saints, a relationship is fine. But with Jesus, the maker of my soul, I want something more. And we talked about this, and we parted company. And that night when I went back to the Jesuit community, I got online in the Corpus Christianorum database. And I just, I said, I wonder if Augustine, I always liked Augustine, I approached him more as a Latinist, but I said, I wonder if he uses the term deification. So I typed it in 18 times. And I started to Google, and I thought, nobody's written about this. And that gave me my idea for my dissertation. So at that moment, thanks to this street preacher, I went from being a potential classicist to going into early church. And I thank God every day for this woman, right? Because she really helped me understand that this is an essential part of our faith. I mean, think of it, friends. One of the reasons I wanted to get you early in your school year is, I think when we are little, the preposition we use for Jesus is for. I'm doing things for Jesus. Remember when you were little? You would do things for him? Wait till you start hitting middle age. The preposition will become with. You know, your knees start to hurt. Your back hurts. Jesus, I need you to do this with me. But I think the height and the goal of the Christian life is to start doing things as Jesus. Imagine if you started studying as Jesus. Or going to class as Jesus. Being a friend as Jesus. Being a boyfriend or girlfriend. Or as Mary. We have this option as Catholics. It's a nice out, you know. <laughs> but imagine that. Understanding the goal and the aim of the Christian life isn't simply having our sins forgiven. It isn't simply growing in virtue. It's literally becoming an extension of Christ's own presence on earth. And you may not realize it, but this is really the heart of our Catholic faith. And it's starting to be recognized more and more. So the next quote I give you, of course, is from the Creed. You may say it in Latin, you may say it in English, I don't know. But at the heart of the creed, against those Arians, remember those Arians, right? That the Son is less than the Father. And so we have this whole inclusion, this Christology right in the middle, that I believe in Jesus Christ, who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Now think of that. Why is that phrase that way, begotten, not made? Right? Well, because there's two ways of being a child of the Father. We do believe in Jesus Christ, who is the eternally begotten divine Son. 
Just as your human parents beget you as human children, the Divine Father before all ages eternally begets this Divine Son. But one son wasn't enough for the Father. He wanted billions of children. And so through grace, He makes us His own beloved sons and daughters. And if you think about that, St. Paul especially uses the term adoption for this reality. Now, I don't know about you, but my oldest sister is adopted. All three of my sisters have adopted kids. And if you walk into their homes, you couldn't tell their naturally born children from their adopted children, right? The, the African-American and the Korean would probably give it away a little bit. <laughs> but if my sisters, who are all wicked, right, don't discriminate between their naturally born from their adopted children, how much less would God the Father? I mean, we would excoriate a human family, wouldn't we, if they divided their human begotten children from their humanly um, adopted, begotten to adopted children, right? But think of the father, one son, and in that son, we have all become his sons and daughters. And I think the difference between Jesus the son and we who are sons and daughters by adoption is the fact that Christ, you know, if you will, almost allows himself to be loved infinitely. He allows himself to be loved by the father. Where in our sinfulness, there's part of us that doesn't want to be adopted. There's part of us that doesn't want to be known. We would rather have, if you will, the, the orphanage of sin and alienation than the uh, belovedness of a family. Because face it, when you belong to a family, people start to ask questions, right? Where have you been? Who are you hanging out with? What time do you be home? And there's part of ourselves that say, like, oh, I don't like that, right? I don't like curfews, right? I don't like homework. But that's a sign of love. Isn't it we hear in the letter of the Hebrews, right? The, the children learn they learn through obedience. And then when we allow ourselves to be adopted, we allow ourselves to be loved, there's a new set of expectations. But with that comes a whole new set of power. As Christians now, we can do things that no merely human can do. We can forgive our enemies. We can pray for our persecutors. We can live forever. We can love. Love is not a natural virtue, right? It's God's very essence flowing in and through you, as you. Or think of the words that Jesus taught us in the one prayer he gives us, our Father. On the natural level, neither, neither of those words are true. None of you use the royal we in the dorms, do you? You probably get slapped by a roommate, right? We would like a little more heat now here. Please turn up the other. But as Christians, we pray our, because we're, we're never alone. As Christians, we are surrounded by the saints. The Holy Spirit personally dwells within us. And that kind of loneliness is one of Satan's greatest tricks. Especially if you're here for the first time, maybe, freshman in college. Maybe that loneliness has creeped up. The enemy loves that. He wants you to think you're alone. He wants you to think you don't matter. In fact, where does he strike? In the desert, right? The temptations of Christ. For 40 days, Jesus has been out there. You don't think he's wondering, like, anybody, anybody miss me? You know, Peter, James, anybody looking for me? Right? Satan knows when to strike. When we're feeling unloved, when we're feeling uncared for, when we're feeling unadopted. And how does he strike? You think you're the son of God? Look at the temptations. Clever ways of starting temptation. If you are the son of God, if you are, right? And that's the one thing Satan doesn't want us to believe, that we're not the beloved children. It's the one thing he wants us to kind of dismiss and think, uh-oh, I'm a bother to God. I'm a disappointment to God. But the truth is, we get to call God Father. Now again, on the natural level, that's not true, right? Our fathers are Jim and Joe and Gene and Jack. But as Christians, the Father is the first person of the Trinity. The one who spoke this entire cosmos into being is now our Abba. And so throughout the Christian story is this invitation to see yourself, if you will, 
as extensions of Christ, right? So I teach at St. Louis University. It's a little different demographic than here, but not that much different. Your confessions are all the same, believe me. Right? <laughs> and I had a lecture about 300 kids once. Uh, it was an ironic, it, it was a sad thing. We had a lot of losses in the department, so a couple of us signed up to teach these huge sections, usually the sections of 25. But, and I had a young Muslim woman in this class, beautiful and great questions. At the end of the semester, she stood up and she said, I learned so much from Christianity this semester. I want to thank you all. But there's still one thing I disagree with. You talk about God like he's a friend. And I called her down after class. I said, I'll let you out of the, the semester's exam if you write a paper on John 15. Right? I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And you've read enough Aristotle and Cicero, I imagine, to know that the definition of a friend in the classical world is another self. This notion of God loving us so much he wanted to become like us. And we all celebrate that. But that's only the first act of a two-act play. God became like us so we could become like him. That's the part we tend to forget. That God calls us another friend because he has become like us. Only because the invitation there is to become like him. Have you noticed this in your parents? Have you said to any of your parents, well, you and, you and mom, you're just alike. You know? Hopefully that's a compliment, right? Or think of your best friend. You see in that person someone you want to be. You see qualities in him or her that you admire and want to appropriate. Well, think of the incarnation. What did God see in the human race he wanted to become like us? And what do you see in Jesus Christ or in Mother Mary that you want to become? What are the qualities? What are the personality traits? What are the characteristics of our Blessed Mother, of Jesus, that you see and say, wow, I really want that? Because the truth is, friends, you become like the person with whom you spend the most time. Haven't you noticed that about you and your friends? You see dog owners all the time, right? They start to look like they're pooch. <laughs> same haircut, same sweater vest. You know? <laughs> but that's really the heart of our faith. So let's go to the Catechism 460, the, the third quote there. <clears throat> the word of God became flesh to make us partakers of the divine nature. Second Peter. And this is why the word became man, and the Son of God became the Son of Man. So that man, by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine adoption, the word there in the catechism, sonship, right? But we're not all sons. Might become a son or daughter of God. St. Irenaeus, martyr, maybe 180, 188, we're not sure. For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. St. Athanasius, right? The guy who wrote the creed. And here's your own Thomas. The only begotten Son of God wanting to make us sharers in his divinity assumed our natures that he made man might make men gods. Now this sounds pretty stark, right? Have you heard a homily on this ever, that you were to become God? You should hear my homily. I mean, uh, the second collection today will be, you know, I mean, this is heady stuff. This is heady stuff. And often in the history of theology, if you read this stuff, they'll say, well, this is a Greek doctrine. And in many ways, that's true because the Greeks were preaching in these little monastic cells to ten people with really big beards, right? Well, we have homilies from the Western Fathers. A lot of them were bishops preaching to the average kind of Christian who didn't have the intellect and the, the theological training that they did in the East. But it is all over in the West. You see, Aquinas, I want to show you tonight how it is in Augustine, okay? I see Aristotle. I'm staying in Weston Hall, right? Um, where that coffee room's locked between three and seven. That was, I didn't like that. Um, 
Oh, there's an uprising. <laughs> but I see, uh, I see the posterior analytics were out in the categories. You know, Augustine's the first to coin a phrase, a substantial relationship. The relationships in our lives are accidental, right? We come and go with friends, we've had teachers that have come and gone, maybe our grandparents have gone, but you and I remain, right? That relationships for us are accidental, they don't totally define who we are. But think of the Trinity, right? So, Mr. Shield, how many, how many humans are in this auditorium today? 90? Okay. How many persons? 90, right? You and I have our own humanity as human persons, right? You and I have our own suppositum, Thomas will say. Right? Your humanity is like mine, but not exactly, right? We both stand under the same common um, species of humanity, right? Substance, substance, we're standing under. If you don't like this talk, you can go. I think, I don't know, I'm not sure. But, um, one of you will be getting up at 2.30 and take me to the airport, right? Not all of you will be, thank God. Um, but we all have uh, similar humanity, but not identically so. We have an autonomy built into ourselves. And at first, we think that's a good thing. Nobody can really get to me. Um, you know, I gotta do it on my own. I'm the one that matters. Now think of our God. How many gods are there? We're the first two people. One, good, okay. How many persons, how many divine persons in God? All right. See the difference? You see the difference? The Father doesn't have his own divinity. The Son doesn't have his own divinity the way you and I have our own humanity. What is the difference between the Father and the Son? It's not one of substance, it's one of relationship. That the Father, if you will, is entirely who he is because of the Son. Think of our own earthly fathers. The moment they found out you were conceived, I'm sure they were happy. And I'm sure there was some change, right? They started to like, probably get more nervous, got a tick, you know? Started to get gray. But nobody said, who are you? Right? We recognize there's a certain, there's a certain permanence, right? Um, because changes for us, relationships for us are accidental. But think of God the Father. Your father is somewhat dependent on you to be who he is, right? His, his, his identity has changed somewhat. But he's not totally dependent on you. He existed before you. But think of the father and the Godhead. How dependent is he upon the son to be who he is as the father? 100%. Right? If it weren't for the son, how could the first person of Trinity be father? How could he be the begetor? And here's the great paradox I want to start with tonight. Because Augustine is one of the first to see this. The Father is more reliant, more dependent upon another person than you and I are. Isn't that something? That the Father needs the Son 100% to be who He is as the Father. And the same with the Son and the Holy Spirit. That just gets a little messier. But when Jesus Christ says, be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect, most of us Americans who are, you know, we're all highly functioning here, we tend to think of perfection in terms of independence or aloofness. The more proficient I become at something, the less I need assistance, right? The wealthier I become, the less I need handouts, and so on. We tend to think of perfection in terms of autonomy. But maybe when Jesus Christ, the Son of the Eternal Father, says, be perfect, my Heavenly Father is perfect, maybe he's saying something like this, become um, more reliant, more dependent, more intimate, more vulnerable. Learn to see that none of you have caused yourself, have created yourself, right? I don't care what the guy in the White House said, there are no self-made men, right? We're all here because somebody took care of us. We're all here in order to live for others and so on. 
And so Augustine, in coining the term a substantial relationship in his work on the Trinity, I think gave us a pattern, if you will, or a prototype of who you and I are called ultimately to be. To get rid of the autonomy, to get rid of that temptation to think we have to do it alone, that's what Pelagianism is, thinking that we have good in us that God didn't put there. You're reading the anti-Pelagian stuff now, right? So I'm supposed to play that up and get it, yeah? <laughs> so I like the knitters in the room. This is, no, no, keep going. <laughs> Speakers get a scarf when we leave, or not? <laughs> but this notion, think of it. Think, I mean, who would hear, you don't have to raise your hand, but who would hear sometimes says, I love you, and you realize, that was kind of flippant. I didn't, you know, I, we say it a lot, right? If you're like me, I say I love you to my siblings. Like, right about my phone's like, here, yeah, 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 I love you. Right? How many people in the world would you actually be able to look at and say, you know what, I not only love you, I, I need you. I need you to be who I most want to be. And we may think of that as a weakness, but it's actually a divine attribute in Augustine's system. In his theological macrostructure, this notion of divine reliance within the Trinity is a really beautiful, essential part of understanding how Augustine understood not just God, but all of reality. That we become more and more human as we learn to live in, out of ourselves more, right? As we come out of ourselves more. You can almost hear about it in two, right? That the human person um, is the only creature who, who finds him or herself through a sincere gift of self. It's all over the Christian tradition. But that notion of gift can only happen because Christ has first given himself to us, right? Augustine's noble aging. How do the confessions start, right? By praising a song. Augustine knows the only thing he has to give to God is what God has first given to him. So he begins with a line from God's own book. You see this all the time in Augustine. He can give nothing to God that God hasn't given him. So God has become human so we can become like God. And look at that quote from 460 in the Catechism. That first word is really important. Partakers of the divine nature. Not possessors. If you think you possess the divine nature, you're wrong. But you partake in it. If you take a piece of metal, alone that metal is cold and hard. You can do some things with it, but not much. You put it in fire, it doesn't cease being metal, but it takes on a new nature, right? It participates in the warmth and the glow. It becomes malleable. You can bend it and make something out of it. It's the same with us. Apart from Christ, Augustine's no Calvinist. He knows we have a natural goodness. Splendid vices, he calls them, in the city of God. But in Christ, we become fully human. We become fully ourselves. God can now use us. We never cease being creatures. We never cease being human. We only partake of God's nature insofar as that God now allows us to do things in him and as him. But when we think we possess God's nature, we become literally diabolical. That's Augustine's, one of his great insights. Let's, let's get there. All right, it's 8.03. We have, we have two hours. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta get those earmuffs done. <laughs> so, Augustine coined a lot of words, right? You know, according to Augustine, you know what the first creature is? This is clever. You think you're smart, but you are. The first creature for Augustine is a thing called formabilitas. Think of that Latin. I know you love Latin, you're a TAC. Well, you have to take it, anyways. <laughs> But for Augustine, the first creature is this metaphysical concept of the ability to be formed. Isn't that clever? That before creation, there's nothing actually formed, God simply is. And so before the, the stars and the skies and all that, the first thing is this notion of formability. Another term he coined is soliloquy. 
It, it will happen before Shakespeare, right? Solus loquor, to speak alone, to speak to oneself. And in the soliloquies, he depicts reason talking to himself, and get this. Does it not seem to you that your image in a mirror wants in a way to be you and is false because it is not? That certainly seems so. Do not all pictures and replicas of that kind and all artists' work of that type strive to be that in whose likeness they are made? Augustine replies, and convinced that they do. So notion what Augustine's doing, this notion of the image wanting to be like the archetype, the image wanting to be like the model. Think of your own experience. When do you feel most alive? When you do something good, right? When you do something noble, when you do something virtuous. Who in here has been caught ever in a lie? Who in here goes to confession behind that sheet down in the basement, right? There's something about sin that, that defaces us, that shames us. Well, you're reading Dante, aren't you? Have you ever noticed as you get further and further down into the inferno, names start to stop and faces start to be? People don't want to be talked about. They don't want to be known. They don't want to be seen. And this is what Augustine understands. That we who are made in God's image and likeness, when we act like God, we feel fully alive. We don't mind being found out. But when we are turning away from God, that transparency ceases. We get now upset when somebody asks, where you been? What have you been looking at on, online? What did you say about me, you know? We are hardwired for goodness. We are made in God's own image and likeness. And this is really where Augustine's missiology begins. That our hearts are restless, right? They are inquiet, inquietum is the Latin there. They are restless until they rest in God. And I think if I can say at 54, this is why God puts old people in your lives. Because when you're young, you think popularity is going to satisfy you. And then you become popular, and you're like, that stinks, right? And then you think maybe getting into the right college. And then when you get out of here, your first temptation might be financial success. And I think God puts old people in the life to realize, you know, all those things are good and important, but they're not going to satisfy you. Our hearts are restless so they rest in God. And that's one of Augustine's great starting points. And it's all rooted here in this imaging of God, the Imago Dei theology that he gives us. Go to the top of page two. Many of you commented you like pictures. That's good. I knitted them myself. <laughs> now, sin. Let's talk about sin. I mean, it took the administration three months to realize you need two confessionals here. <laughs> Here's Augustine's definition of sin. It comes from Vero Ligione, the first work he uh, wrote as a priest. Seeking God in the perverse imitation of Almighty God. What is the human person after all, if not to be the only one to whom all the rest of creation is subject? Right? Remember God can do again. The human person is the only creature God willed for him or herself. We are the height of creation. If he would only unhesitatingly imitated God by living his precepts, all created things would have been his and he would not have come to such a deformity so as to fear that fiend who wants to conquer men and women. This shows that pride also has a certain appetite for unity and omnipotence. Then he goes on to quote Genesis 3.5. Remember Genesis 3.5? Why does Eve fall? What does Satan eat? say to her? Eat that and you will be like God. Now think of this. You can't be tempted by something you already have, right? I can't tempt you by saying, hey, if you come to my talk, I'll, no, you're already here. Right? Nor can you be tempted by something about which you have no idea. And so Augustine's the first in our Christian story to 
Christian tradition to really exploit this and say, look, Satan, a fallen angel, fallen, I think Aquinas is fallen seraph, right? I mean, it's like, it's like on the 18, right? He knows what to do. And he knows that Adam and Eve have been created good, but incompletely. Ignatius, Ignatius, sorry, Augustine, Sermon 169 says, God who had to create you without you, refuses to save you without you. Isn't that clever? God had to create you without you. He had no choice, but he won't save you without you. He won't drag you to heaven unless you want to go. He won't let you go to hell unless you want to go. And so you and I have a role to play. In fact, Augustine is the first one to see at the end of the days of creation in Genesis 1, Genesis says, and God saw that it was the end of the first day. Genesis 1.31, God looks over all things and says they are very good. And in one of his commentaries on Genesis, Augustus says, wait a second. The sixth day, the day on which you and I are created, doesn't get its own stamp. It is good. Because you and I are the only creatures that are created with a role to play to fulfill our nature. We're created good, but incomplete. Because we're creating the image and likeness of another, and until we appropriate that other, that drama isn't settled yet. That you and I have this adventure built into our lives, right? G.K. Chesterton says, you ever read the 12-volume history of the cow? It's pretty boring, right? But not for you and I. You were immersed in the Western classics. You see this drama playing out, right, in every century in so many different ways. It's a beautiful story. But it's our story, too. And so Satan knew that you and I are created to be like God. And Augustine argues this, that every sin is when Genesis 3-5 reverberates in our lives. Maybe this is true. Maybe you can relate. But every sin, Augustine would argue, you tell God to get away. You tell the rest of humanity to get away. That when you sin, you think, well, I wouldn't want her taking my Rice Krispie bars in that coffee room over in Weston that was locked between three and seven. <laughs> but when I take hers, it's because I'm hungry or I'll pay her back. You know what? She took something from me last semester. Haven't you ever done this? You justify your own sinful actions by making yourself, if you will, according to Augustine, a god or a goddess, at least for a second. Who am I hurting? No one's going to know. I'm tired. I'm stressed, you know. But for Augustine, every sin is that temptation to become our own god. <clears throat> Our temptation to put ourselves above community, above the rules. Now, of course, his understanding of God is a little skewed here. His understanding of God is one of power, one of might, not one of love and self-gift. But nonetheless, we all have that temptation to reduce God to this kind of abstract power that can do whatever he wants. So there's Augustine's theology of Imago Dei, followed by his theology of sin. Let's look at one more. It was not enough for God to promise us divinity in himself unless he also took on our infirmity. As though to say, imagine the Son of God saying this to you. Do you want to know how much I love you? How certain you ought to be that I'm going to give you my divine reality? I took to myself your mortal reality. We mustn't find it incredible, brothers and sisters, that human beings become gods. That is, those who were human beings become gods. So we go from the Imago Dei to this temporary interruption of sin to Augustine's Christology. And think of it. It's really intriguing that the Son of God comes to earth because of our sins. He comes to earth not because he sees perfection, not because he sees this brilliant party going on. He sees people going to hell. So is it true that God loves us not despite our sins, but maybe because of them? Think of any loving parent 
It'd be a really bad parent who said, until you get your act together, I'm not going to be available to you. It's precisely when our acts are low, Fs, that our parents act all the stronger. They love us all the more. They make themselves more available. And Augustine has a sense of what we call the great exchange, that God saw our brokenness, and so he empties himself, right? He did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Philippians 2, verses Genesis 3, 5, where we grasp for godliness on our own terms. And out of his emptiness, Christ shows us how much he loves us. Maybe many of us can relate to a time we were sick in bed, or a sibling was sick in bed, and mom or dad or you walk into your little brother's or sister's room and you saw them sniffling and sneezing. You know, if you're like me in the big family, you got the throw-up bucket that worked its way around, you know, all the bedrooms. Um, I always thought, Mom, why don't we get our own bucket? I think we could afford that. Um, but how many, how many moms would look at you and say, honey, you know, if I could take your place, I would. If I could take on your sniffles and sweats and, and you could go out and play, I would do that in a heartbeat. I wouldn't even think twice. But see, we mortals who have this autonomy of our human nature can't do that. But God can. And this is what Paul means when Christ becomes sin. He takes on everything that you and I suffer from. He takes on all the consequences of our own self-imposed harm, our own, our own loathing. And this is what this is what Augustine's saying. Do you want to know how much I love you, Jesus says? Look how much I give you. And I give you not only my divine reality. It's not like I just superimpose it upon you. I first take on your mortal reality. I first take that place of yours in that sickbed. And when I do that, I give you everything that is glorious. Next quote. This comes from Augustine's biggest work, his commentary on the Psalms. He who justifies is the same who deifies, because by justifying, he made human persons into children of God. He gave them power to become children of God. Oops, I should be capitalized. If we are made God's children, we are made God's. But this is through the grace of the one who adopts, and not through the nature of the one who begets. For there is only one Son of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The rest who have been made into God's are thus made by His grace and not born from His own substance. So as to be what He is, but they come to be, they come to Him through His generosity and are thus Christ's co-heirs. So thinking of my nieces and nephews. They are my nieces and nephews. Not out of anything they did. They didn't win the orphanage 100 meter dash, you know. They're my nieces and nephews because my sisters and their husbands love them. And you and I are Christians. You and I are Catholics. Because of the love the Father has and the love Mary, our mother, has for you. Don't ever get tempted into that Pelagianism of working your way into the church. Don't ever congratulate yourself for having read the right book that gave you that impetus to revert or come back to the faith of abandon. Those things may be true. That friendship that helped you get here, that, that text that helped you get here or stay here. But all of those are ultimately God's gifts to you, right? They're all a matter of God's love for you. And the second we start to say, ah, I'm so glad I've done this. I'm so glad I, it's over. And Augustine's theology of deification in this Christology aspect has a real sense of gift, grace, right? Freedom, that's what grace means, gratis, right? It's been given without condition, and it's been given without any merit of ours. Do you know what Aquinas is four levels of pride? Right? We have, we have two and a half hours. Um, for Aquinas, right, the first kind of pride, the garden variety, variety of pride, is giving yourself a perfection you don't really have. You know? Don't we do that all the time? Did you, did you read that book? Oh, yeah, I read it in an hour. It took me an hour and a half, but you know, I tell people. 
The second kind of pride is when you actually have the perfection, but you think you have it because you gave it to yourself. You know, I know many of you are many, very talented. Is this the choir here? <laughs> Waiters? No, what? Is I just thought maybe it was a scola or something, right? There's nothing wrong in admitting that you're a good singer. I heard some of you singing today in the refectory, right? Um, but when someone asks you why, there's a big difference between the person who says, well, I work really hard over and against, well, God's given me the genetic makeup, he's given me parents that struggle to send me to, you know. So the second kind of pride is when you actually do have the perfection, but you think you have it because you gave it to yourself. The third for Aquinas is that you, you have the perfection. You know God gave it to you, but you think he did so because you would do something with it. Now, that's a scary one. And I'll tell you one day, I was in my room praying, and of the eight kids, only two of us still go to Mass. And that's bad when one of them's the Jesuit, right? Um, I remember thinking, God, I guess you gave me the faith. I've always loved the faith because you knew I tried to do something with it. I tried to teach, tried to write. And then it occurred to me, David, that's pride. You think I gave you this faith out of what you would do with it? I gave you this faith because I love you. And that third species of pride, I think, is something that can creep into our lives who are more traditional, who are more um, self-sufficient, who are a little more... Um, zealous for the faith. We think we've done something. And that can be a form of hubris. The fourth kind of pride, just to round it out, which is also scary, is that you know you have the perfection, you know God gave it to you, you know you don't deserve it, but you secretly don't give it to anyone else. You don't share what you know. You don't let on to other people something that might help them because you're afraid it might detract from what you have. And you can see why in the seven deadly sins, pride bleeds into envy, right? Um, but... Let's go to the top of page three of the Again, these are sermons. And you should know as, as young intellectuals, sermons of Augustine really weren't read until the 20th century. Uh, for one thing, there weren't many English translations of them. The three things people read were the Confessions, the City of God, and the De Trinitate. But the letters and the sermons of over 400 of them each, they're finally now in really good English form thanks to um, the, the Augustinians at Villanova. And so people are starting to draw from these more. They can read them more accessibly. And more and more dissertations are being done on Augustine's sermons. Because let's face it, I would talk to, I'd talk to you very differently tonight than I would uh, a parish of normal, of normal Christians, right? With babies crying and old people. You ever notice nobody's louder in church than old people whispering? <laughs> Did you see Margaret's hair? <laughs> You didn't have anything to live by, and he didn't have anything to die with. What a marvelous exchange. Live by what is his, because he died with what is yours. We celebrate the death of Jesus Christ. Isn't that crazy? On Easter morning, Jesus shows the apostles his wounds, and what do they do in John 20? They rejoice. I don't know of any other place in classical literature where wounds elicit joy. It's usually revenge or sorrow. But there's something in the Christian story about admitting death or brokenness that actually elicits celebration. How do we begin every Mass, right? Confidium. Lord have mercy. But that is a form of praise. It hit me one day, as a Jesuit novice, we do 30 days of silent retreat. And we have this meditation on the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. And we stay with it for about four or five hours. And you're supposed to ask Mary to help you see what she was thinking. And I tell you this because it was a really powerful moment in my life where Mary said to God, 
If you're life, the only thing I can give you is death. If you're perfect, the only thing I can give you is imperfection. If you are infinite, the only thing I can give you is the smallness of my womb, and so on. And it occurred to me, this is precisely our God. The God of the Muslims and all the other gods and goddesses, they're always on the side of the powerful, the whole, the strong. But our God is a God of the weak, a God of death, a God who saves the world not through power, but through weakness, and so on. And you really see this coming through Augustine in many ways. Next quote, in fact. Later making us shares in himself, but first becoming a participant in us, we had nothing of our own by which we could live, nor did he have anything from himself by which he could die. Therefore, he struck a wonderful exchange with us by means of a mutual participation. Ours was what allowed him to die, but his is what allows us to live. He was made so small that he could be born of a woman. But he was never, right? We all know this, not separated from the Father. O man, on whose account God became man, you ought to consider yourself to be something great. Do you consider yourself something great? I bet not. You should. But first, Jesus wants you to be great, right? But on his terms, not yours. You want to be great, become last. You want to be number one, learn to serve. This is what he says, right? Come down low in order to go up high. Because God too came down low when he became a man. Sit close to your cure. Imitate your master. Acknowledge your Lord. Embrace your brother or sister. Understand your God. That's what he is, this one so great and so small. And then the quote from the title of the talk tonight. No, that's not true. That's another talk I have. You want to hear that one? No. <laughs> Let us rejoice and give thanks. We've not been made Christians. We've been made Christ. That appears in the catechism. I forget where that quote. Think of that. This is embarrassing. Look to the person next to you. Is that Christ? Do you serve that person as Christ? Or is that person a bother? Right? <laughs> Someone who steals your Rice Krispies. Right? But this is the whole point of the mystical mind. Um, in the bowl there, you should know, have you ever heard of a German theologian named Ratzinger? <laughs> he wrote two dissertations, one on Augustine and one on the medieval Augustine, St. Bonaventure. And his first dissertation, not translated into English as far as I know, dealt with these three participles. That there are three ways of being from the Father, Ratzinger wrote. The not who is God, the one who is begotten, who is born, the Son. The one who is given, the gift, the Holy Spirit. And then the one who is made, the Christian. Nachos, dachos, factors, kind of clever. Let's go to the back, because we'll end with these couple quotes. Now, I wonder if we shouldn't have a look at ourselves. So, Sermon 133 is basically Bishop Augustine of Hippo kind of, kind of chastising his faithful for their sins. It's a, I think it's a Latin homily. And he's going on and on, and then he finally says, look, let's look at ourselves. And you might be thinking, huh. Right? I don't want to look at myself. And notice the next move here. I wonder if we shouldn't have a look at ourselves, if we shouldn't think about his body. See, you're never alone. You're not just you. You're a member of a body, a glorious body. Lord, look, look not upon our sins, but upon the faith of your church. Because he also is us. Quia et nos ipseus. After all, if we weren't him, this wouldn't be true. When you did it for the least of mine, you did it for me. Matthew 25. If we weren't him, this wouldn't be true. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not my people, not my church, but me? So we too are him, 
Because we are his organs. Because we are his body. Because he is our head. Because the whole Christ is both head and body. Next quote. For what is and for them do I sanctify myself, since they themselves too are myself? Are you yet at the point in your life where you can look at another person and say, this is another me? This is who I am too? You love someone so much that their wheel or woe becomes your wheel or woe? You know, C.S. Lewis says, friendship begins when you look at another and say, oh, you too? Right? You hate the Patriots too? Right? <laughs> There's a certain affinity and this is the whole point of the Incarnation. And this is not Jesuit heresy. Believe me, I ran this whole talk by Mr. Shield. Jesus Christ has three bodies. What? Yeah. The moment Mary said yes, the Son of God received a one-cell body. The night before Jesus dies, what does he say? Now, this is my body. But then we get lines of Matthew 25 and Acts 9. The mystical body, and that's who you and I are. And even though the modes of Christ's presence are different, nonetheless, if we take Christianity seriously, we start to surrender to this idea and pray to see Christ in one another. Augustine would have us do it. If this weren't true, how could this be true? Whatever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do to me. Because every Christian has to believe in that first body, right? And if I can say every Catholic has to believe in that second Eucharistic body, and you do it beautifully here. But I'll challenge you. I mean, one way it's convenient to keep Christ in the sanctuary. It's convenient to keep him only in the host. But we become saints by seeing the lonely Christ in those who are struggling, who are homesick. We become saints by feeding the hungry Christ when you go out and work with homeless, perhaps. That's where the saint is made. Right? This, of course, feeds into the Holy Nation spirituality of finding God in all things. But don't forget, Augustine was philosophically converted by Plotinus, whose last line of his ending is, is that one goes alone to be alone. That the Greek mind thought you had to strip yourself of any kind of community or commitment if you're going to become divine. You have to get rid of your mortality and human nature, relationships. Compare that with 1 Corinthians 15.28, that God longs to be all in all. Of course our God is all, but he's not a micromanager who absorbs everything into himself. He's a loving father who delights to see his children open his gifts to them. The beauty of this fall day, the, the friendships that I hear, right? Even pumpkin carving, I guess, can speak to you of God's goodness, right? But all the ways that God has invited you to meet him in your library, in your laboratory, in your classes, in your friendships. That's what Augustine's mystical theology is. And the term he coins is this whole Christ, the last line of that top quote. The whole Christ, the totus Christus for Augustine, is the church. That Christ alone is, is insufficient. He's incomplete, if you will. Just as I imagine if your parents are going through empty nest syndrome, right? They feel alone. I didn't sign up for this. I wanted a house full of kids. And that's the way the incarnation works. He came to establish a church. And when any of us stay outside the church, and when we can't reach those who are outside the church, Christ is not whole yet. That third body, that mystical body, the totus Christus. Let's go to the last quote, and then we'll take questions or disagreements or... Yarn. <laughs> Sermon 272, Christian 404. It's Easter Vigil. And I don't know if you noticed, but the early church, if you weren't baptized, you couldn't stay for the offertory and the liturgy of the Eucharist. You were, you were dismissed, okay? So for the first time, these newly baptized Christians see the offertory. They see bread and wine. And as far as I can tell, this homily is done in two parts. I think what happens is Augustine stops. He says to these new neophytes, these, these, these new, new Christians, Listen to the Apostle Paul speaking to the faithful. 
You are the body of Christ, member for member. If you therefore are Christ's body and members, it is your own mystery that is placed on the Lord's table. Wow. You ever thought about that? You're going to mass thinking, this is my mystery. This is I am the body of Christ. Have you ever been to mass and realized the four verbs you hear are taken, blessed, broken, and given? You know every time Jesus touches bread in the New Testament, those four verbs are used? If that's true, you are the body of Christ. Have you ever prayed about how you've been taken? The fact that you've been conceived, what are the chances of that, right? I'm sure you have genetics coming up. Blessed. The fact that you can study in a place like this. The fact that you've been given gifts. Think of all the blessings of your life. But here comes the hard part. Broken? Where have you felt broken? Where have you felt incomplete, addicted, sinful? Maybe there's a great paradox of the cross that that's precisely where Christ gives you away. That's precisely where he allows you to be more human and tender and understanding with those who also struggle. But I just encourage you to take Augustine's Eucharistic spirituality to prayer. That you are the body of Christ. It is your mystery on that table. It is your own mystery that you are receiving. You are saying amen to what you are. When you hear body of Christ, Corpus Christi, you reply amen. Be a member of Christ's body then so that your amen may ring true. But what role does the bread play? The bread is one. We, though many, are one body. Understand and rejoice. Unity, truth, faithfulness, love. One bread, Paul says. What is this one bread? Is it not the one body formed from many? Remember, bread doesn't come from a single grain, but from many. When you receive exorcism, you are ground. When you are baptized, you are leavened. And when you receive the fire of the Holy Spirit, you are baked. Be what you see and receive what you are. You know, to this day, the baptismal rite still has those three moments. The moment in which the priest makes the cross of the forehead on the child, right? We used to call that exorcism. We don't anymore because moms get mad. I always say, wait 14 years, you'll, you'll see. <laughs> and then the water, the baptism, Augustine says that's like kneading the dough, and then the oil of, of chrism, the same oil the bishop uses on a priest. You ever smelt a freshly chrismed baby? Oh, you want to give that kid a bath for years, right? But crowning that child, making him or her a member of Christ's body. And so Augustine understands, and we who are Catholics still receive that same gift of becoming, what is he saying? Becoming bread for the world, becoming Eucharist for the world. My last point. Jesus Christ promised he would never leave his orphans. He promised to be with you until the end of the age. Challenge your non-Catholic Christians how Jesus Christ is present in their life. They'll say spiritually. Say, no, that's the Holy Spirit's job. Jesus Christ has gotten me flesh. Where's that flesh? Well, that's what every tabernacle is, huh? But notice in his wisdom... That bread doesn't have hands to go help the needy. That host doesn't have ears to listen to the lonely. But see, you and I do. And that's why that Eucharistic body needs a vibrant, on-fire, mystical body. Because no one will believe what we teach about transubstantiation until you and I live lives that are different. And that's my talk.